Hey, this is Tyler Johnson, pastor of Mission Church located in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for tuning in. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you live the life God called you to live. Enjoy. Hey, good morning, Mission Church. So great to be here with you guys, as always. Um, just reflecting this morning through worship and communion. I love communion. I'm a huge fan of communion. Um, Everything that Tyler said, just, it just always brings me right back to the Lord. And so I was just reflecting on how good it is to be amongst the people of God, worshiping the God of all creation. So just blessed to be here and, and excited to preach. But also this week, I'm just going to be honest, I'm a little bit burdened in this sermon because um, sometimes you prepare a sermon on a text that you know no matter what you say, you're not ultimately going to be able to do uh, justice to the depth of this text. Does that make sense? Like, like sometimes, like God's word is just profound. It's just insanely profound. And, and so you come into some sermons just knowing like there's just so much more here than I can actually touch on in the given time in the hour and a half that they've given me this morning. I was just kidding. That was a joke. Um, but you never know. We'll see. So, uh, and so I just come to this, I come to this this morning with a lot of, a lot of humility, wanting to to really kind of rightly handle the word of truth here, but also wanting to confess to you that this is, there's a lot more in John chapter three than what I can actually give you this morning. So if, you're, if you have your Bible, you can open it up. We're not gonna read it yet, but you can kind of open it up um, and, and just kind of put your thumb in there. And, and one of the things that I was drawn to in this text, one of the things I wanna help us do this morning is I want us to just kind of really understand what leads up to verse 16. Because most of us know John 3.16. If you've been around the church, if you've been around Christianity, if you've ever been to a sporting event, you've seen John 3.16, like hanging up on a sign, right? We're all familiar with the, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, right? Like we know that verse very well. But as I was reading this text, I started to think, but how many of us are familiar with the context that takes place right before it, right? Like how, how many of us are familiar with what leads up to those famous words, right? And so I'll, I'll illustrate it like this. Raise your hand if you saw the movie Maverick. Anybody seen Maverick? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, yeah, yeah. Right, huge Top, I love Top Gun. I love Top Gun, I could watch it. When Maverick was coming out, Netflix had Top Gun again, I was like, I'm gonna watch it. And then my daughter was like, I wanna see Maverick. I'm like, not without seeing Top Gun first. And we watched it again like two weeks later. I love Top Gun. Now. How many of you here, and be honest please, how many of you here saw Maverick but had never seen the original Top Gun? All right, okay, sorry Joe, sorry buddy. <clears throat> if I had known that I was about to just call out Joe Little, I wouldn't have done it, I'm sorry dude, I'm sorry, yeah. I feel bad for you. Um, yeah, I met, so I actually, it's funny though because I met several people. I met several people and I was like, oh you saw it, and they were like, yeah it was so good, and I'm like, oh cool, and then I was like, had you seen the original? And they were like, no, and I'm like, what? No, I feel bad for you. If you didn't see the original and you saw the second, sorry, Joe, but I feel bad for you, right? Like, like you didn't know that Goose died? That is the movie, you know what I mean? Like, if Goose doesn't die, then, Matt, then, then Top Gun is like just a weird 1980s like buddy film. It, you know, it just, it's, it's not that even good, I don't think, unless Goose dies. It then becomes this tragedy and this like redemption story. I mean, it's a great film because, unfortunately, love Goose, but he dies. And you watched Maverick without it, right? It's crazy to me. Sorry, Joe. <laughs> Here's the thing, is you can watch Maverick first, but I believe that the experience is much richer when you know the story that comes before it. And similarly, we might be familiar with John 3.16, but our understanding will be enriched when we know the story that comes before it. 
And so we're going to jump in this morning. We're going to read John chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. If you have your Bible, you can read along, but I believe it's also going to be up here on the screen. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it, is go- where, it is, where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has come from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And verse 316, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Pray with me. God, we are humbled by the reality of your goodness. And as we stand here this morning, as, as, as we look at this text, Jesus, we, we hear all of the things that you're saying, and maybe a little bit like Nicodemus, we're saying, what are you even talking about? But God, we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts and our minds, that we would know your truth. And I pray, God, that you would move in our hearts. Wherever we are, whoever is here today from different places in life, God, I pray that you would move in hearts by the power of your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going I'm to I'm try to hit three points this morning. I'm going to be honest. I'm not even sure that I'm going to be able to finish two, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. So we're going to go through uh, three points. And the first point is this, is that we need to see Jesus for who he is. We need to see Jesus for who he is. See, this text begins with a conversation, right? There's this, this, this whole dialogue that's taking place between Jesus and this man named Nicodemus. And it's important that we understand who Nicodemus was because his role in the Jewish society was significant. He was kind of a big deal. First, he was a Pharisee, right? And we hear about the Pharisees. Jesus had a lot of of beef with the Pharisees throughout his ministry. But but it's important to understand who the Pharisees were. They, They were a group of Jews who emphasized a diligent obedience to the law. Okay, so it wasn't even all Jews were Pharisees. It was actually kind of like a brotherhood, but there, it, was, it was a very and probably the most influential group of Jews. And they emphasized just absolute and total obedience to the law because they believed that that's ultimately how they would get God's favor. And so here is this guy, Nicodemus, and he's a part of this group who just takes rules and put them on top of God's law, rules on top of rules on top of rules on top of rules. And what the text also says is that Nicodemus was also a member of the Jewish ruling council. 
This would have been a group called the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin was basically a big group of people who were given legislative authority over the Jews in the Roman world, right? So it was a religious body, but also really a legislative, like a legal body. And so he's a part of this group, right? And it would have been made up of Pharisees, it would have made up of this group called the Sadducees, it would have also been made up of, uh, of the priests and even the chief priests. So it was a big deal. And so Nicodemus is a part of all of this. He's a big deal. He would, he, he would have been wealthy. He would have been socially very powerful. He would, have been, uh, he would have been educated. I mean, he would have just been like a real deal in that society. And he kind of comes to Jesus at night to address Jesus. And here's where we find really interesting, right? Because in verse two, he says, says he came to him at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you were a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And to be honest, like when you, t- when you look at a lot of the interactions that Jesus has with Pharisees, you're like, this is starting pretty good. You know, this, one, this one's doing okay. Like Nicodemus seems like he's on the right track. He's saying some nice things about Jesus and it's good, right? He comes in and he recognizes the works of Jesus. He recognizes that something is happening with Jesus that is, then, you know, something different from what is happening in the broader society. He sees something unique about Jesus and he sees that there's gotta be some connection with Jesus and God. He also calls him rabbi and teacher which is really significant, maybe the most significant part of his whole address. I think Nicodemus was probably like, kind of like when you were a young, maybe if you were like a young man and you're going to like ask a girl out on the date, like you'd think about it, you know what I mean? Like, like the whole time you're like thinking about like, this is exactly what I'm gonna say, this is how I'm gonna say it, right? These are the words that I'm gonna use, like you come at it with like a plan. I think Nicodemus, as he was coming to Jesus that night, I think he was thinking like, these are the words I'm gonna use, this is how I'm gonna address him, this is what I'm gonna try to say to him. And so he calls him rabbi and teacher which are great because those are terms of respect. I mean, those are terms of honor. But here's the, here's the tricky part about this. As I was studying this text in the last week or so, um, Bible scholars, biblical scholars and historians are all over the map as to whether or not Nicodemus was coming as a jerk, trying to be rude to Jesus, or like maybe was he on like some spiritual journey really trying to find favor with Jesus. It's crazy when you read this, right? So, so some people believe that Nicodemus already knew that Jesus was the savior, or at least maybe he should have known, and so he was coming and he was saying, yeah, you're just, you're just a rabbi and a teacher, but you're not really the son of God. You're not really the Messiah. And other folks think, no, 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 Nicodemus was on a spiritual journey here, and he really did see something unique in Jesus. And so he comes, and he's looking at this, and he's saying, yeah, there, there's something profound here, and, and he's just kind of trying to, trying to uh, make nice with Jesus, coming with some niceties. Even a third option is there, which is that maybe what Nicodemus was doing, either intentionally or unintentionally, is there was probably a little bit of arrogance on his part. You know what I mean? Like he's a big deal and he knows he's a big deal. So he's probably coming. He could be coming at least in this and he could be saying to himself like, like Jesus is just this, this, you know, this poor guy and you know, he's just doing his thing and it's exciting what he's doing, but he's just this guy, but I'm a, par, I'm a big deal, right? And so when he says rabbi and teacher, the people that are on the same social level as Nicodemus would have been considered rabbi and teacher. Even Nicodemus would have, con- uh, would have been considered teacher. And so maybe what he's saying is, is like, hey Jesus, do you wanna be on my level? Like, let me pull you up. And there is some arrogance there, right? Whether Nicodemus intended that or not. Here's what I believe, this is my opinion. I believe that Nicodemus ultimately was well-intentioned and simultaneously misinformed. 
right? And like, like, I think he probably had his heart in the right spot, but he misses it. He misses it. And that's what's important to understand about this initial interaction to this whole text is that Nicodemus, well-intentioned but misinformed, because check this out, it's not wrong to call Jesus rabbi or teacher. It's not wrong. It just falls short of ultimately who he is. It's not wrong to call him rabbi or teacher. It's just incorrect to think that he is only a rabbi and a teacher. It's incorrect to think that he is just that. The reality is that this, this, this particular world that Jesus has come into, this particular world that Nicodemus is a big player in, didn't need more rabbis. It didn't need more teachers. What it needed and what the world still needs today is a savior. What it needed was a Messiah. And Jesus is that. And Nicodemus, whatever his motives are, fails to recognize the reality, the bigger picture of who Jesus is and what it is that he's trying to do in this world. Here's what I think. And this is where I give a little bit of, you know, this is where I give a little grace to Nicodemus. I think what he was doing is that he sees all this happening, and, and I don't know if he's ready to call Jesus Messiah or not, he clearly didn't, but I think he's looking for some categories, some human categories to fit Jesus into. He's looking for some boxes, right? Like he's looking, he's saying, okay, this is interesting, this is profound what Jesus is doing, this is important, but I don't really know what to call him, but here's the categories that I'm used to, rabbi and teacher. And so I think what Nicodemus ultimately is doing is he's just trying to put Jesus into some categories that make sense for him. The problem is, is that Jesus isn't gonna fit in those boxes, right? Jesus doesn't fit in our boxes. He's he's bigger than that. And to say that he's bigger than that is actually an understatement. He is so much bigger than that. He is so much more significant than the boxes that Nicodemus tries to put him in. And the reality of that is, is that he is so much more significant than the boxes that you and I try to put him in. Because we can still miss it. Even if you've been following Jesus for a long time, even if you've been in the church, we can still miss it. So often we try to make Jesus into what we want him to be. We can turn him into some sort of moralist or some sort of political figure. You know, he's not a part of your political party, just so you know that. He, you know, he, sometimes we try to make him like a, like, a, like a security blanket. We just need him when we go on the airplane so we feel good. You know, like, like we try to do all these different things with Jesus and that are ultimately too small for who Jesus actually is. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Talladega Nights. I, I promise I have more things to talk about this morning than movies, but um, I, I love this scene in Talladega Nights. Um, if you haven't seen it, there's a scene where, and you guys are familiar with it, you know what I'm talking about, where they, they're praying at the table, right? And so Will Ferrell plays this race car driver, and he's there with his best friend, and then the, the family is there, his father-in-law's there, and so Will Ferrell prays, and he prays like to baby Jesus, right? Little six-pound, four-ounce, golden-diapered baby Jesus, whatever he says, right? Like, he prays to baby Jesus. And then his father-in-law, who's there, gets mad and actually defends Jesus. He's like, what are you doing? Jesus was a man. He had a beard, the whole thing, right? Um, And then the best part to me is uh, Will Ferrell's sort of buddy in the film. He goes, well, you know how I like to picture Jesus? I like to picture Jesus with a tuxedo T-shirt and big angel's wings singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner, right? (laughs) Which is just like, that's when it becomes a little bit like blasphemous and weird. You're like, okay. But here's what I love about that. I've always loved that scene because I think there's a prophetic nature to it. 
because of the fact that what we do is we try to put these things on Jesus. We try to see him the way we want to see him rather than understanding who he really is. Because let me just say this, the Jesus that you try to put in a box will not change your life. He won't change your neighbors. He won't save a city. He won't transform a community. He won't because he can't because you've just put him in this little box. The real Jesus is the one who transforms. The real Jesus is the one who transcends our perceptions of him. And, and it's, it's theologically accurate to say that even now, even as we worship God and study the word for our entire lives, we may never fully comprehend or grasp the reality or the depth of who Jesus is. It is that significant. It is that significant. And so the first thing, the first part of this whole thing you have to understand is that we need to see who Jesus really is. Nicodemus didn't get it. He didn't get it. And here's how Jesus responds, which is my second point, which with an invitation to be born again. And this is huge. So Jesus... Uh, you know, Nicodemus comes and he's got these niceties that he says, right? And maybe he's being a jerk or maybe he's being a nice guy. You know, we'll leave his motives uh, between him and God. But, at the, you know, he comes with these niceties and Jesus responds. And Jesus is very direct. Like Jesus is loving and he's gracious and kind, but he can be very direct sometimes. And this is one of those moments where he just cuts right to it, right? He doesn't necessarily say like, oh, I'm bigger than that or all these things. Like he doesn't get into it. He says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Which would have caught you off guard, right? I mean, it would have caught me off guard. And to be honest, if you look at the text, Nicodemus comes strong at first with that whole thing that he says, right? In verse two, he comes strong. And so you're thinking, okay, you've prepared something. But then everything that Jesus says throughout the rest of the text has Nicodemus on his heels, He's like, wait, how can this be? What are you talking about? How is this happening? So, so it catches him off guard. But Jesus says, very truly I tell you that no one can see, hear that word, see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That word see in the text literally means to perceive or to understand. So check this out. What Jesus is doing in this moment, and this is the brilliance of Jesus, is he recognizes the misunderstanding of Nicodemus. And he says, here's why you don't see. Here's why you don't understand. Here's why you don't perceive, because you have not yet been born again. Which, I mean, you know, that, that sounds great. And, and as Christians and as, as people who follow Jesus, we're like, okay, that makes sense to us, but that would have made no sense necessarily to Nicodemus, which sort of gives us an insight into his, into his response, right? So if you look at, at the very next set of verses, Jesus then, or sorry, Nicodemus then responds. He's like, well, uh, how can somebody be born when they are old? Nicodemus asks, and then he asks like this kind of really strange and awkward thing. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born, right? Like, that's a weird thing to say, Nicodemus. But here's the thing, Nicodemus is a literalist. He's a literalist. That's what we see in this whole thing, right? Like he sees Jesus doing miracles in the world and he says, okay, this is not normal. Nobody could do this if they weren't connected with God. So, so I believe that you have to be connected with God. I get that. He's a literalist. And so then when Jesus says this, it throws him off. And so he goes to this very literal place when Jesus talks about being born again. And Jesus, in his kindness, tries to clarify. So then we get to verse five, right? So Jesus said, okay, let me clarify. Let me expand a little bit on this for you because I want you to understand. He says, very truly, I tell you, 
No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. So he says the same thing, but he expands on it. And, I, and the piece that I want you to catch is that he changes the word. In the, in, in the first part, he says no one can see the kingdom of God. In the second part, he says no one can enter the kingdom of God. What's interesting is that if you look at it as just like no one can see unless they are born again, that could have been misconstrued as a closed door. That could have been misconstrued as, hey, look, you don't see this clearly. You haven't been born again. You're not a part of the club. You're not in this. But what Jesus does when he clarifies is he changes it into an invitation and he says, hey, look, this is not a closed door. This is an open door. And you have an opportunity now to enter into the kingdom of God and see with greater clarity what it is that God actually wants to do in your life. And so he changes it to this word enter, allowing Nicodemus to understand that there is opportunity here. And of course, he says, born of water and of spirit. Um, I could probably talk for two days straight on what it means to be born of water, because that's a very confusing theological term, and there's a whole bunch of different, uh, uh, a lot of disagreement uh, historically and theologically as to what Jesus said or meant about that. I'll just say this right now. It probably, the best definition I can give you is that when Jesus said you have to be born of water, probably refers to or represents repentance um, and cleansing, if that makes sense, right? But what Jesus is really talking about, which is what he continues to talk about throughout the rest of the text, is this idea of being a movement of the spirit. You're born of spirit. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh. So here's where, here's where Jesus is, I think he's kind to Nicodemus in this, because I think he's giving Nicodemus some, some, some credit here. He says, look, I get it. I hear what you're saying, right? Nobody can re-enter their mother's womb. I, I get what you're saying, but that's a weird question, so I'm not really going to address that. I'm just going to say this. Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh. Check. We've got that. We all understand that. We're all on the same page about that. But spirit, and here's where it's going to blow Nicodemus' mind, spirit gives birth to spirit. What Jesus is saying is that this is not a movement of the flesh. This isn't just a normal movement of, of, of humanity. This isn't just a normal thing that happens. This is ultimately a movement of God's spirit. To be born again, to use Jesus' words, is to be born again of the spirit. And this is where Nicodemus actually would have gotten hung up. Because why would he have to be born again? I mean, look at his life, right? Right? I mean, Nicodemus is looking at this, and he's like, why would I have to be born again? See, the Jews considered themselves to be privileged by having been born a Jew. They were like, we were born into the covenant. We were born into all the privileges and blessings of God's people. Why would I have to be born again? Why would I want to be born as anything other than who and what I am? And then he's lived this great life. Right? I mean, he's lived this great life. He's educated, he's wealthy, he's powerful, he's got social clout, people respect him, right? Like, he's got it all together. And he's thinking to himself, why do I need to be born again? Why would I, of all people, need a fresh start? He's got a great story, he's got a great life. And the reality is, is that, you know, we all come into the church or, or into Jesus or just even here today if you're not really with Jesus yet. Like, we're glad you're here and, and we all come to this moment with a story, right? Everybody does. You have a story, I have a story. And some of our stories are great. Like Nicodemus, some of you guys were born into great circumstances. 
We're born into maybe wealth or great families or we were born in the church or, or we were, we were, we, we've had great opportunities for education and our story has been great. Other folks, maybe not so much. Sometimes we're born in, in, in rougher families. Sometimes we're born in poverty. Sometimes we're born in, in places that we don't want to talk about. Sometimes we come from places that we don't necessarily want to talk about. But here's the thing. No matter which story you were born into, the one thing that is true of everyone in this room and the thing that was true of Nicodemus, which he misses, by the way, is that every one of us has a problem with sin. Every, problem, every one of us, it doesn't matter what your story is, every one of us has a problem with the brokenness of sin. We are all sinful. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And that's Nicodemus's problem here, is that he doesn't see that. He thinks he's got it together. He thinks he's figured it all out. He's like, look, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a teacher. I'm a big deal. I'm a part of the Sanhedrin. Like, I'm a part of all this stuff. I'm not necessarily in need of what I think you're offering right now because he doesn't understand the reality and the weight and the problem of human sin. And I don't care what story you come in here with today, the reality is, is that we all have sin and we all need to receive the redemptive promises of God through this experience that Jesus calls being born again. We're all invited. Because being born again is part of a new story. It's, 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 the, it's literally the making of a new story. Being born again, what Jesus is talking about, and if you've experienced this, I've experienced this, I know many of us in this room have experienced this, but, but if you've experienced this, being born again is like a personal, fundamental revolution. It's a radical changing of everything that you thought you were and everything that happened to you previously up to that point in your life. It's a moment in which God says, look, I know you have a story. I know you have parents. I know you have this. I know you have that, but I'm going to be a new father to you. You're going to be into a new family. There's going to be a new story, a new future, a new hope, a new set of promises. And God literally from that moment on rewrites our story, changing us in a way that we never thought we could be changed. And it doesn't matter. Here's the thing is, is going back to that idea of sin, like we think about, okay, well, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. And if you're here this morning, and, and, or if you're hearing my voice in any way, if you're watching this on the live stream later or, or, or the recording later, whatever it is, I just want you to know that it, your, your story does not inhibit the work of God. It doesn't matter how good your story is, and it doesn't matter how broken your story is. It doesn't matter how bad your story is. It does not inhibit the work of God. Nothing, and I mean nothing in all this world, can stop God from changing your life. The reality of your sin is not too big. It's not like God looks at you and says, well, you know what, that one time, that was too much for me, you know? God's not looking down at you saying, you know, I know what you did that one summer, you know, in 98, I remember, and you were, we just can't, we can't cross that line. Like, Jesus doesn't feel that way about you. He doesn't, right? He's not looking at your life thinking, well, you're the one who's just so bad that you can't be redeemed. Right. You're the one who's just so bad that you can't be born again. God does not see your life that way. The reality is that God is looking at your life and he is literally saying, you can enter the kingdom of God, you can be born again, you can be transformed, and you can live a new life in Jesus. Yeah. Ultimately, living the life that God has created you to live. And so how do we do this? Some of you might be like, well, how do you get born again, right? 
To some extent, I think that uh, Nicodemus was maybe asking this or maybe not asking this. I think he was just confused. So if you look at verse nine, he says, how can this be? Like, what are we talking about here? And so Jesus, uh, for mostly the rest of the text, verses 10 through 15 nominally, he talks about a lot of different things that are sort of very theologically rich and, and I'm gonna skip over most of them. But if you skip to verse 14, he says this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, the Moses and the snake thing is kind of a weird reference. Some of you might not know is in Numbers, the book of Numbers, um, verse 21, I think, or chapter 21. And, and what happens is, is the, the Israelites are just goofy. They're getting all weird as they usually are. And, and these snakes are attacking them, right? And so they're getting bit by these poisonous snakes. And they're dying. And God says to Moses, well, if you take a, uh, you know, make this bronze snake or whatever, and then just hold it up on a pole, right? Just put it up. Everybody who looks at the snake will be immediately healed and saved from the snakes, right? It's a, kind of a weird story and kind of a crazy uh, occurrence. Um, glad I've never had to live through, you know, like crazy snakes biting everybody. Um, but here's the reason that Jesus brings this up. It's twofold. One is because Nicodemus, as a teacher, as a Pharisee, as a Jew, would have immediately known this story. He would have understood. All of a sudden, he would have correlated, oh, that's a lot bigger deal than, than maybe what I thought you were. That's a bigger deal than rabbi and teacher, right? Maybe he didn't even necessarily, maybe he wasn't prepared to accept it right then, but he would have at least been able to say, oh, wow, I get what you're saying. That's a different thing than maybe what I thought you were. And then what he's also doing, and this is where Jesus is, and this happens a lot in the book of John, is he's foreshadowing the cross. Very sort of in a veiled way. He's not being very, he's not like, I'm going to go and be persecuted by the Romans and then hung on a cross and die for your sins. He doesn't explain it in that level, but what he's saying is, look, so the son of man must be lifted up. Just like the snake was held up on a pole to save the Jews, so the son of man, so will I have to be lifted up. What he's saying is ultimately is that, and what, and what, he, really what he's doing is he's foreshadowing the gospel for Nicodemus. Because check this out. Nicodemus has this really interesting place in the book of John where he appears three times. First time is in John chapter three. We're reading about that right now. The second time is in John chapter seven. John chapter seven, um, sorry about that. John chapter seven, uh, people are griping about Jesus. The Sanhedrin and the Jews are all griping about Jesus. And, and, and uh, Nicodemus actually tries to defend him and they, they like shout him down. They like yell at him and just basically tell him to shut up. And so uh, there's that moment where, where Nicodemus, you might almost think like, is he starting to believe or is he believing? He just doesn't want to admit it to the Sanhedrin. Like, what's he, but he's definitely in process, you think. But then here's the most interesting piece is that in John chapter 19, after Jesus dies, there's a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who I believe is also a part of the Sanhedrin, who goes to Pilate and says, can I take Jesus's body off the cross? And it says that Nicodemus goes with him and takes a bunch of like, basically embalming spices and they basically embalm Jesus's body together. Because here's what I think happens is that Nicodemus is processing for the entire part of Jesus's ministry. And I don't know when maybe he gets saved or gets born again. I do believe that he does. But here's what happens is Jesus goes to the cross and all of a sudden Nicodemus sees it and is like, oh yeah, now I get it, right? All of a sudden he sees him lifted up on the cross and he remembers what Jesus had said to him in John chapter three. And he says, oh yeah, now I get it. 
Now I believe. And at that moment, maybe for the very first time, we don't know, it's certainly the first time it's recorded, he steps out and says, I don't care who sees it. I don't care if the Jews or the Pharisees or the Romans or the Sanhedrin, I don't care who sees it. I am going to go with him to get the body of my Lord. And so Jesus is explaining to him this method of salvation, right? Like, like you're going to be saved because of what I do. And then in verse 15, which then gets shadowed in verse 16, he says this, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Everyone who believes. How do you get born again? It, it, it's, it's pretty simple, actually. You don't have to do anything. God's not asking you to do a bunch of stuff. He's not asking you to jump through a bunch of hoops. You don't have to get your life cleaned up. You don't have to do anything except trust that Jesus is who he says he is and that he will do in your life what he wants to do in your life and that he has saved your soul. That's all you got to do is just believe. This word believe literally just means to trust. It just means to have confidence in, right? What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and what I believe John is saying through John chapter three, verse 16, is that what we just have to do is put our faith, our belief, our trust, our confidence in what God has done through Jesus. That's it. That's it. You don't have to do anything else, but just really believe in who Jesus is and who he said he was. And so here's the first two points, right? So we are gonna have time for point three. He says, The first thing we have to do is that we have to see Jesus for who he is, and then we have to really be born again. God invites us to be born again. And the last point that I have today is that the Spirit moves as he pleases. The Spirit moves as he pleases. So going back, we're actually going to backtrack a little bit into verse 8. So Jesus has just said to Nicodemus, you know, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are uh, born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The spirit gives birth to spirit. And then he says, and you shouldn't be surprised at me saying that you should be born again. And then he says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. I mean, I don't blame Nicodemus for getting confused because Jesus is covering a lot of ground real quick in this text, right? So it's like you were talking about this and flesh and water and spirit and then the wind. Okay, Lord, right? Where are we going, right? So Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. This word wind in the text, in the Greek, is a word pneuma. And many of you might be familiar with the idea that the, both the Greek and the Hebrew words for spirit both mean also wind or, or breath. So, so what Jesus is saying in John, 8, or, uh, John 3, 8, literally what he's saying is if he says the wind blows wherever it, it pleases, he's already been talking about the spirit. He may as well have just said that the spirit blows wherever it pleases. The Spirit is going to go wherever the Spirit wants to go. The Spirit is going to do whatever the Spirit wants to do. And he says you can hear it, but you don't know where it's come from or where it's going. In other words, it's like the wind. He's comparing the Spirit. He's comparing the movement of the Spirit to the wind, saying, yeah, you can sort of see or hear or understand the effects of the wind, but you're never going to know where it comes from, where it goes, what's causing it, what its origin is, what its destination is, what its direction is. You just know that it's moving. And what I really, truly believe that Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus is he's saying, look, you don't know where the Spirit's going to move. You don't know 
who's going to be born in the spirit or who's not going to be born. You don't, you don't know who's God, who God's going to save next. You don't know whose life is going to be transformed next. Right? You don't, you don't know what God's going to do. What he's saying is, is that this thing, this whole thing about a movement of the spirit where people be born again, it's ultimately a lot bigger than us. It's ultimately outside of our control. And here's the thing is when we talk about a movement of the spirit, you know, it'd be great if we could sort of plan that out, right? Don't you think it would be fantastic if we could just have like a ministry, like movement of the spirit, like Mondays or something, you know, like we all get together and we're like, yeah, you know, Susie's going to get born again this week. And then next week we've got, we've got Jim on the docket. He's going to get saved. And then, you know, two weeks out, we're really excited. We've got a whole family, the Larsons. Sorry, if your name's Larsons, I, I'm not trying to pick on you or anything, but, but yeah, the Larsons, they're going to get saved in a couple. We're really excited about all these folks that are going to get born again. It'd be great if we could plan that out. But what Jesus is saying is you can't plan that. You can't control that. You ultimately can't even understand it because the reality of all this whole thing is that God is gonna do what God wants to do. Jesus is gonna save who Jesus wants to save and we believe that he wants to save everyone. The thing is, is you cannot plan for a movement of the spirit, but you can do two things. You can pray for it and you can prepare for it. That's it. That's all you can do. It doesn't depend on you. Right? It doesn't depend on you. It, it just depends on God moving, but you can pray for it and you can prepare for it. In my life, I was just sharing this with some folks recently, like in my life, in my years of, of um, working in churches and, and following Jesus and just being a part of the kingdom of God, I, I believe that, I know that I've prayed for revival, but I don't think ever in my life have I prayed under the burden like a consistent burden prayer for God to do something in my region or my world. Does that make sense? And, um, and I've started to pray that way. And part of it, we're, you know, we're super grateful for Pastor Tyler. Part of it is Tyler's preaching, right? Like he preaches on this theme a lot. And so that's been very influential to me in, in my life and in my faith. I, I just admire your vision, admire the, uh, the faith in all of that. But part of it also has been influenced by some stuff that I've been reading on my own, just reading about some of the, the great awakenings and the revivals of the past. And just as you dig into the word and you start to really come under the conviction that God wants to transform lives. And so I've begun to pray differently around those things. I've begun to, and I don't even know necessarily, I'm not prophetically saying that God is definitely gonna bring a revival tomorrow. I have no idea, right? I'm not here to say that. What I am here to say is that I believe because of the word that God wants to bring people to new life in Christ. God wants to give the, the invitation for people to be born again and to be radically transformed and experience that personal and fundamental revolution of being born again in Jesus. I believe, man, this thing's gonna be the death of me. Can I just get one person to hold this from? Just kidding. Just a volunteer, please. Uh, I'm kidding. Um, stay. I believe that God wants to do all those things. And, and, and all I'm doing in my own personal prayer life is just saying, God, okay, let's do it. Right? If, it, if you're going to save 10, save 10. If you're going to save 100, save 100. If you're going to save 1,000 or 10,000 or a million, then do that. But God, let's do it. Right? And so I think what we do in this is we, we begin to posture ourselves, we begin to position ourselves in, in a place where we're saying, okay, Jesus, we're ready for you to do what you want to do. Yeah. Whenever and however you choose to do it, we're just ready for you to do what you want to do. And, and here's what I'll say is it's a good thing that we're not in control. Yeah. It really is, right? 
It might, like I joked about having a movement of the spirit ministry. That's really, that's really a bad joke when you think about it because it's a good thing that we are not in control. Because here's the problem. The problem, and then I'll go back to the text. The problem with Nicodemus isn't necessarily who he would have chosen to be born again. It's who he wouldn't have chosen. All right, Nicodemus was a very powerful man. He was a, he was a Jew. He was a law-abiding Jew that emphasized certain things, had been trained to emphasize certain things. And I can guarantee you that he would have chosen people to be born again who were just like him. He would have chosen law-abiding Jews, maybe even just Pharisees. You know who wouldn't have gotten saved? The woman at the well in John chapter four, the very next chapter. She wouldn't have gotten saved if it was up to Nicodemus. You know who else wouldn't have got saved? John chapter eight, the woman caught in adultery, right? You know who else wouldn't have gotten saved? Me. He wouldn't have chosen me. You know what I mean? He might not have chosen you. The reality is, is the problem is with this whole thing is that if we're in control of what God's doing, which we're not, but if we were, we would just choose people that are just like us, right? That's just what people do. It's just what you do, right? And that can be, uh, you know, that can be expressed in very, very bad ways. But, it, but the reality is, is we're all sort of prone to that on some level. And, what I, and actually what I know is, I just don't have time to dig into it. There's a layer, there's a theme in this text that over and over and over again emphasizes that God wants all people. That nobody is excluded. And I really do believe that that part of this text is speaking against this sort of like, this, this sort of like heterogeneous thing that the Jews had built, right? Like it's not just about this whole, this whole little thing. It's really about this bigger picture of God saving all kinds of people from all kinds of places, bringing salvation to all different communities, just doing something that is so much bigger and significant and profound than you and I could ever even dream. Because here's the thing, man, is, is like, you think about the people that you'd be like, yeah, I don't think they'd get saved. God can save them. Yeah. Your, your weird neighbor with all the political bumper stickers that you don't agree with, <laughs> you think Jesus doesn't want to intervene in that person's life? And it's not because of the politics. It's because we all need redemption, yeah. right? Your cousin that bugs you? You think God, you're like, yeah, God, save that, right? Like, like please, like, but, but the reality is, is that all the people, even the people that have hurt you, the people that you would say, God, no, I don't, I don't even know if I want them to be saved. The reality is, is that God can save them. The reality is that there is nobody, not anybody on this earth who is beyond need or beyond the reach of the power of God. I don't know who's gonna get saved or who's not gonna get saved. That's not for me to know, right? That's the point of what Jesus is saying here. But what I do know is that God is at work. What I do know is that whether I wake up or whether I sleep or whether I go to work or whether I don't, whether I preach or pray or do any of those things, God, the Holy Spirit is already moving. The Holy Spirit is already blowing. People's lives are gonna get changed whether you and I are ready for it or not. The reality of it is, is do we get to participate in the redemptive purposes of God in this world? That's the invitation that we have. And so we begin praying and we begin preparing. And, uh, and here's what I'll say. You know, I don't, you know, there's probably a lot of things that we need to do as people to prepare for the movement of God. There's probably just a lot of stuff, and it's probably more than I can even imagine, more than I can even come up with, certainly more than I could teach you right now. But I believe that Mission Church in this moment has been taking some, some steps to be prepared. So, so you saw the announcement. You've seen the announcements over and over again for the first 40 groups that, that Mission Church is doing, right? What these groups literally are is if you're new to faith, 
If you're new to Jesus, if, you, if you've recently been born again, and by recently, I don't, I don't have a time limit on that, okay? If you've just become new to this whole thing about Jesus, then we have a place for you. We have a place for you. There, there's, a, there's a spot open for you to get deeper in your walk with Jesus, to get anchored and rooted in your walk with Jesus. And Caroline, who is, she disappeared. She moves like the Spirit. She comes and goes. We don't know where she is, but she's somewhere. That's for sure. We do know that. She's doing something important. Um, Caroline has, has done a lot of great work to put these groups together. We're going to have three groups starting right now, right? So we're going to have um, two co-ed groups that are going to be ran. And then uh, myself and Nick Turkovich, we're going to be leading a, a men's group. So if you're new to Jesus in any way, shape, or form, come be a part of this. You know what I mean? Let us walk with you. Come walk with us. And we, we invite you into that, and we're excited about that. We're excited about what God's doing in your life. I remember when my daughter, my oldest daughter, is sitting right there. She doesn't like attention, so I'm doing it to mess with her. Her name's Audrey. She's 14. She'll be 15 in a couple weeks. Um, she, she doesn't usually dress like a softball player unless she has a tournament, which she does today. So, um, Anyways, uh, when she was first born... She was first born, and uh, you know we were we were you know we were the new parents. We were excited, you know. If you've ever been down that road, like you're all fired up about it. And um, I remember, you know, we were all we were all fired up to go to like our, you know, like the one month, like the new baby doctor's appointments. You're like, we're going. It's our one month appointment. We're really excited. We're gonna go. You know, maybe pick up diapers on the way home or whatever. So we go and uh, we go to the the doctor, and our, our doctor had had previously worked in labor and delivery. So he was a pediatrician, obviously, but he had previously worked in labor. Anybody here work in labor and delivery? Okay, nobody. Sorry. Every time I ask you guys, only one person has raised their hand this whole morning, which was Joe. So thanks, Joe. <laughs> thanks for being that guy. Anyway, so labor and delivery, right? So he had worked in labor and delivery, and he was just telling us about how much he loved babies. Maybe he just says that to all the new parents because it makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside. But I remember him telling us about how much he loved babies and how he had worked in labor and delivery. And I remember him telling us um, he called himself a birth junkie. He goes, he goes, I'm a full-on birth junkie. And I'm like, what do you mean? What does that mean? He goes, I just love being a part of births. He's like, I just love it. And he's like, and he told me, he said, a lot of, that's why I asked if anybody here is part of that. Nobody is, obviously, so it's, it's uh, not relevant to any of you. But he said, he said that a lot of people who do labor and delivery work as nurses or doctors, they're, they're, they're like addicted to the process. Like, they love doing it. And he said, and he's like, it's like, it's like an adrenaline rush. And, and I was one month out from having gone through that process, and um, I don't know if you've ever seen a human child be born, but it is an adrenaline rush, right? <laughs> like, I could say a lot more than just that, and I'm not going to, but it is, if anything, it's an, I mean, it's a crazy experience, right? It's a crazy experience to see a human being come into this world. And so I could see, I could see how these folks would become addicted to that process. I could see, to some extent, how you would become a birth junkie. And as I was preparing for this text this week and for this sermon, I just thought, you know what? Maybe that's what we need as the church. We need to become birth junkies. Not necessarily, I mean, if you want to, I mean, that's kind of weird, honestly. If you're not in labor and delivery and you become a birth junkie, I don't even know what to do with you, okay? Right? You're as awkward as Nicodemus. But, but, um, but what we need to do is become birth junkies for people who are born in the spirit. 
right? We as the church need to be so excited and so prepared and so intrigued and interested and ready that no matter who is getting saved, whether it's your weird neighbor or your weird cousin or your coworkers or whoever, that no matter who is getting saved, that we are as the body of Christ excited to come alongside these people and say, hey, we're fired up for what God's doing in your life. We wanna help you in this season. We wanna walk you through this. I'm sorry, I should have invited the band up like five minutes ago. You guys can, you guys can head up. Yeah, you guys can head up. Um, here's what I believe, Mission Church. Here's what I believe. In the reality of, in the biggest picture of all this, what I believe is that God wants to do a transformative work. That's what he's always been doing. That's what he's been doing ever since he took uh, you know, Abraham out of his father's house. Like he has been, he's been doing it forever, transforming individuals transforming families, transforming marriages, transforming regions, transforming communities. And, and what I think sometimes is, I think sometimes that we live in the Bay Area, we've lived here, you know, if I've lived here for a long time, I've lived here pretty much my whole life, maybe you have as well, and we start to just accept the fact that this is like a very unchurched region. And we just say, okay, yeah, that's where I live, I live in the Bay Area, people don't get saved very much, people don't come to church or whatever, and, and, and I think we start to accept that rather than having faith that God can transform that. Does that make sense? I think we start to just live in this sort of acceptance that that's just the lot that we've been given rather than defaulting to a faith that God wants to actually bring a transforming work to all the people, all the places, all the institutions in this land. And so Mission Church, my hope and my prayer and my encouragement to us this morning is that we would put our faith in the words and the work of Jesus here. Whether we find ourselves like Nicodemus or not like Nicodemus, that we would, one, if you've not been born again, receive what God has for you, but two, that we as the church would be prepared to shepherd and steward whatever movement of his spirit that he brings to us. Let's pray. Father, your word is so good. Your truth is so good. Your power is so much bigger than us. Uh, the promises that you have are so much bigger than us. And, and Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would blow in this house, blow on these, on these people, blow in our lives, in our, in our families, in our communities, our schools, churches, hospitals, institutions, wherever. God, just blow throughout this land. We pray, God, that this region would be transformed. We pray, God, that you would do something that only you can do and that ultimately brings something new and significant to a land that is that's broken, a land that is dry, a land that is thirsty, God. We recognize that we have a need. We recognize that this world has a need, and we recognize that you are the only one who's able to fulfill that need, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Mission Church Podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Bay Area, we invite you to come join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at missionchurchca.com. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon.